want to welcome you. Welcome you. Thank you for those of you who watch online. Thank you for being a part of satellite groups all over the place. We are in Romans chapter 8, and there's no reason to set it up. It's so good in and of itself. So if you've got your study guide, turn to page 54. Truly, Romans 8, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture I think there is in all of the Bible. I love this chapter. It, there's so much in it. Um, again, I don't need to fancify it or anything or set you up for it. We're just going to look right into that passage. Let me pray for us, and we'll start in Romans 8, uh, verse 14. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it teaches us, instructs us, encourages us, comforts us, carries us. Thank you that your word is alive, it's living, it's active, it's working, uh, it's doing a work of transformation in us. Thank you that your word is the word of greatest authority. Thank you that your word trumps all other words. Thank you that we can come to your word and meet you and hear from you and be transformed by you. I pray that would be the work you do even this morning. Would you begin with me? Would the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, would my hope, would my joy rest upon you, my rock, my savior, my God, and my friend? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. This is on page 54 in your study guide if you're looking for the passage. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. We talked about that last week. It's a great promise to be led by the Spirit, to be His children. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And remember, that's good news if you did the study. Um, even for women, this was a radical statement because Paul was writing to men and to women, and he's telling them, you are, even you women, are considered a son which in that time, the inheritance, the woman might get you know, a few cows and a pig. Um, this, the third son might get something else, but the, that first son would get the, the load of the inheritance. And, and Paul's saying, You're, you, 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 all of you are an adopted son, and you've received that. You, that's been brought about by the Spirit. And by him, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, that word there that we've kind of uh, think of as daddy. It means our father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, children, then we are heirs. We get the inheritance. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We could just sit there, right? So much in this passage that the spirit of God leads us, that the spirit of God frees us we're no longer slaves. We're sons. The Spirit, I love this. I was thinking about this. I was meditating on this. 
The very same spirit that we talked about last week, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead with all the power of resurrection is the same spirit who tenderly brings about our adoption, right? And as I was picturing this, I, I had this in my imagination, I pictured the Trinity, because it's such Trinitarian language here, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And this is, you know, the, the Trinity is such a mystery, so I, it, this isn't, you know, don't take this as how this really looks. But for my purposes of meditation on this passage, of what does it mean that the Spirit brings about our adoption? I had the picture in my mind of friends of mine who um, have had that day in court when they've been adopting a child. Uh, for me, it's always been a friend who's brought home a child to bring, bring them into their family from the foster system. And they're in the court, right? And I just, this was my picture. I had this picture of God the Father holding you, holding me. Right? That daddy holding that child anticipating the legal rights to you, anticipating the legal rights to me, that I would be his. And I had a picture of God the Son. Now this is, of course, a perfect family, and our families don't typically all fall perfectly into this, but I had this picture of God the Son, my brother, right? The brother, the other siblings, um, many of my friends have had, you know, when they're adopting, they have biological children who are there and they're excited and they've brought a toy for their sibling or they brought something, you know, and they're excited. This is the day that this brother or sister is now officially their uh, sibling and they're ready to share all that they have, all their Legos, you know, in an imperfect world like today, it would be for a day, but, um, but this brother, this brother would share it all, Right? And then I had a picture of the Spirit. To me, the Spirit would be the judge. Remember, we talked last week that the Holy Spirit is our advocate, that he would be our legal advocate, and that it would be he who declares that this one, that me, that you are officially, legally adopted into God's family. You're not just a part, but you're in the family. You're legally, every right that is a Christ is yours. And now this God, this God who is our Abba, our Daddy, he's not a God who's just up there. He's not just the Father of the universe. He's our Father. And Jesus the spoiled son of God. He's our Lord, but now he becomes our brother. And we become co-heirs with him, which means we are equally spoiled with him. And I use the language of spoiled because years ago I was in uh, China and I was reading through the Bible with a, um, or part of the New Testament, with a Chinese friend of mine who had never read the Bible. 
And that's the best. I love to be with people who've never read the Bible. Because those of us who have read the Bible, you know, we're all like, oh, yeah, oh, no, I know. Oh, yeah, I know that. Oh, yeah. You know, just like that. That's how we are. Um, but this friend, she had never read the Bible. And she had asked me for a English New Testament because she said the Chinese Bible that she had, it was kind of like, like reading the King James. And so as we would read through these passages, she had a little... Um, little computer type thing, this was before cell phones, and, um, and she would come across English words that she wasn't sure the meaning of. And I'll never forget, we came upon the word grace, and I think we were in Ephesians, you've been saved by grace, not by works. So she types it in, and she's like, huh, that mu this must not be right. And I said, well, what does it say? And she said, well, it says grace, it says um, to be like a spoiled child. And so if, at first I was going to correct that. Well, no, I mean, grace is like unmerited faith, you know, <laughs> go on. And then I realized, no, and I was like, oh, that's so perfect. Because to have received the grace of God is to receive, to be spoiled. It's to, get, it's, it's to get not just the little Lego box, it's the giant, it's, a, it's that giant Star Wars one that costs like hundreds of dollars, you know? And, and it's just gonna be, it's just gonna sit on a shelf, but you still got it. It's awesome. And this is what happens when the Spirit of God brings about our adoption that we would be spoiled children with Jesus. That we would share with him all that he has, his authority, his power, his tenderness, his grace. One thing, I'm, I'm gonna make about three observations as we go through this passage, and the first one is this. That what this told me as I was sitting in this was that um, I'm not just an heir of God, I'm an intimate heir of God, right? I'm an intimate heir of God. I can cry, Abba. I can call him my father. I'm no longer a slave. I'm a son. I've been set free. And Tim Keller, in his commentary on this passage, he does this little thing, and it's, it's again, it's not perfect, but trying to get our heads around what does it mean to go from being a slave to being a son, and so he makes these observations, and I'll just read them to you. He says this, he says, a slave obeys because they have to. A lot of Christians, a lot of church people, we're obeying just because we have to. But he says, a son, and again, this isn't a perfect family, a perfect relationship. A son obeys out of love for and joy in their daddy. He says, a slave works under the threat of punishment and pain. Again, a lot of churchgoers. They're just obeying, they're working, they're doing the church thing. They're, they're, they're doing it because they're afraid if they don't, there might be some bad consequences, right? They might get punished, there might be pain, and they want to avoid the pain. Keller says, a son knows any discipline to be loving instruction. We know from the scripture in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that a loving father, God, will discipline us. 
Every good parent disciplines their child. Yes, they give the giant Lego set and the Star Wars thing and all the pieces of that, but they also correct and they instruct and they discipline and they say no, right? And that's what our Heavenly Father does. He says, a slave is weighed down with insecurity, with the thought, if I mess up, my master might beat me. And again, a lot of churchgoers are doing that. They're just stuck in this insecurity in their faith. I'm not enough. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. But a son knows if they mess up, their father will forgive them. Their father will certainly, again, there might be discipline, there might be instruction. I'll never forget walking my dog in my neighborhood, and I was up, and uh, I watched this dad obviously disciplining this little, little guy. They were out walking. And then he picked him up, and he put him on the, the, like this wall in front of a, a house. And then he was looking right in his eye. And then I saw him just, both the little boy grabbed his dad's neck, and the dad grabbed the little boy, gave him a big old hug, and I was just like, oh my gosh, I love that. Walked a little further, and it was a guy I know from Christian Assembly. And I was like, yes, dude. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for being such a good dad to your kid, right? It says, a slave is focused on external behavior and keeping the rules. But a son is focused on relationship and the attitude of the heart. He said, a slave has to work, but is given no honor. But a son, a son of God, is honored and invited to join the work. That's the beauty of our followership of Jesus. He esteems us and he honors us. And then he invites us in to join in his mission, to be a part with him. He doesn't say, go do the work and then I'll see if you do it right. And then I might honor you. Right? It's the story of the father of the prodigal son. I'm going to run out and I'm going to tackle you and I'm going to kiss your neck. And I'm going to give you a party before you even prove yourself to me. We are intimate heirs of God. Back to verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Right. Second observation. The spirit-led, spirit-filled life involves suffering. Got to say it, right? Paul has to put it out there. That this normal Christian life, this in-between that we've been talking about, that we live in the between, in between, we live in between Christ's first coming, where he ushers in his kingdom. Often theologians call it the inaugurated kingdom because in a sense we're living in the time between the inauguration and the actual taking of office, right? He's here, he's coming, he's ushered his kingdom in, but he will come again. 
and everything will be made perfectly right. But in that normal in-between Christian life, it looks like this. It looks like joy and suffering. It looks like suffering and joy, right? And sometimes there's Christians who want to pick one or the other. You know those people? You got the person who's just joy, 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 joy. And they're fun to be around, but sometimes when you're suffering, they're not that fun to be around, right? Everything is good. Jesus is great. They're in the midst of a horrific pain, you know. Oh, but the Lord, he will hear us, you know. And they have all that kind of joy, 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 joy. But then there's the other person who's the suffering, suffering, suffering person, right? And they're not that fun to be around. And everything, you know, oh, to follow God. Oh, the bloodstained trail. Oh, you know, taking up my cross, following him. And those are all like true. Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself. But this isn't the whole picture, right? And there's some who, again, think if I'm just joyful, 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 then I'm, it, I, maybe God will then bless me, bless me, bless me. And if I'm just suffering, 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 then God might bless me, bless me, bless me. I mean, so we, we've got both sides. But I believe... The normal Christian life is, what's crazy about it is it's almost a commingling of it. That, that we can step into the reality of suffering and somewhere deep down there can be a joy. And sometimes we can be in great joy and yet we still live in this broken world and there's pain and there's sadness and there's loss, Right? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Live in the reality, there will be suffering, but take heart, there will be joy. As co-heirs of Christ, as adopted children of God, we share in this family trait, if you will. I think it's why Paul said in Philippians 3, he said, I want to share in the sufferings of Jesus, and you're like blacking that one out, you know. <laughs> well, no, nobody wants to share. Why? But, but, but I think what Paul was expressing was that to be in intimate relationship with anyone is to share their suffering by choice. You want to. You want to share their suffering. You want to join. Every mama knows that, right? Every husband, every wife if you are intimate with anybody, you know that when they're suffering, you want to crawl into that hospital bed. When they're suffering, you wish you could just put it all on you, right? And I think that's what Paul was saying. I want to share in the sufferings of the one I'm most intimate with, Jesus. Because his suffering is my life. John Stott said this. It's a long quote, but i got to read the whole thing because it's so good. John Stott said, uh, he's a theologian and author, um, pastor in England. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In this real world of pain and suffering, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? He said, I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, and I want to be respectful to this, and he is too. He's saying, I've stood respectively bef respectfully before the statue of the Buddha 
His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world, because really Buddhism is more of a philosophy, and part of the philosophy is detachment. And we've all tried it, whether you're Buddhist or not. We've all tried detachment. If I could just detach from this feeling, if I could detach from this experience, maybe I could avoid the pain, maybe I could live more peacefully, right? He says, but each time, after a while, I have to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure of Jesus on a cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of the suffering of Jesus. There is still, of course, a question mark against human suffering and evil. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. And then he quotes a poem. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Only our Jesus has stepped into our suffering, taken on our suffering. And in his suffering, Christ combines joy today and forever. In our sufferings, well, Paul says, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul is immersing himself in this attitude of Jesus, who in Hebrews it's said of Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he stepped into the suffering. And what was the joy? The joy was the anticipation of your glory. The joy was the anticipation of my glory. The joy was the anticipation of his own glory. He tells us in John chapter 17 in his prayer that the Father is being glorified and glorifying him at the cross. Verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation, that's, that's the, the seas and the skies and the galaxies and the land, the birds the cheetahs, and all the animals. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. That's why what we anticipate is we anticipate in in the end of Revelation, it speaks of a new heaven, a new earth, full redemption, redemption and resurrection of our bodies, redemption and resurrection of the planet, redemption and resurrection of all of creation. That's why I believe there will be um, grass that is grassier than we've ever experienced. There will be dogs and cats and all the good stuff, right, and birds and everything redeemed. Green, as C.S. Lewis says in one of his books, he talks about green will be greener, purple will be purpler. There will be multiple dimensions, and we're already discovering those in science. Verse 22. We know that the, um, oh, I already read that. Um, uh, did I? Oh, no, no, I didn't. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the, birth, as, as in the pains of childbirth, right, which is such a great picture, because in childbirth, there is joy and there is suffering, I've heard. Uh, there is suffering and there is joy, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. We have been given the first fruits. And so that my third observation is this. We have joy now. We have hope for a future. The first fruits of the Spirit is this. The first fruits was the first batch of a crop, right? So it was the first taste of the grapes. It was the first taste of the apples or whatever it is. It's a foretaste, a foretaste of the complete harvest. And we have a foretaste of what the Spirit is already doing because what Christ has accomplished for us. We are free from sin, as we've talked about, but not yet completely. We're still bombarded by it, right? We are made alive, but not yet fully. There will be a death, but there will be a resurrection, right? We are adopted, and it's interesting in that passage, because Paul says, you're adopted, but then later he says, you will be adopted, right? We're in the process of being adopted, to one day experience the full family status, perfect likeness, full redemption. Today, we live fully alive in all that we have in Christ, in all that we have through the Spirit, and we eagerly and we patiently await the fullness that will come when there will be that day when we are fully glorified, When we see Jesus, the Father and Spirit, face to face, when we are made glorious, C.S. Lewis says this of that day, he says, God will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale. 
that reflects back to God perfectly his boundless power and delight and goodness. And Lewis says, this process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. This is the work of God. He is transforming us into the image of his son. We're going to look at it next week, but I've got I to read it because it's so good. Later in Romans 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And that will be you. And that will be me, fully and completely. Oh, Lord, thank you. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen.